they were both raised around the railroad. Uh, our families, that was our income. Our activities were sponsored by railroad, city, and school. So it plays a very important part in our life, um, our lives. Well, they used to have what they call the eastbound and the westbound home. And uh, they would bring trains into Brunswick, and they'd take a steam engine and shovel them over the hump. Well, as they shoveled them over the hump on the side of the car, they knew where this car was going. So they had many, many rails that they had a, a tower that the guy could switch switches. The brakeman would get on the on the uh, on the boxcars and ride the boxcars down over the hump. They had a wheel on on top of the car. Well, sometimes they they uh, the wheels were so rusted that they'd have to use what they call a brake club. Well, they put the brake club in the wheel and helped turn the wheel. But that brake club also served as a ball bat for us kids that played in the street. We used to use them to play baseball with. And how did you get them? From the Vienna Railroad. And Dad used to bring an extra one home. Working jobs were engineer, fireman, conductor, brakeman, flagman, uh, just goes on down the line. Mm -hmm. But the engineer made the most money? From what I can remember, yes, and I, and, and, and I think that stands true today, too. Uh -huh. The engineer started as a, a brakeman or a flagman and went on to, to being a, uh, a fireman, which the fireman, he used to shovel and shovel coal into the steam engine hopper. Uh, far box. He fired the he fired the uh, the engine, which made the steam, and and, and uh, they had to work some time as a as a fireman to graduate up to a, to an engineer. The N.O. Railroad started out, then they changed to Chessie System. Now it's CSX, and I worked there for 39 years and four months. I started out as secretary to the train master, and then I did a little bit of everything. And I retired when mm -hmm. I was station agent, sold tickets uh, to the commuters and all like that. And you'd get so, you'd get sued all over you. Wow! I See, remember that. <laughs> See, the railroad was the biggest thing. Yes, that the rail of uh, the. Uh, B&O Railroad in Brunswick was the largest single railroad yard in the world at one time. And so what did he do on the railroad? He was a hustler. They uh, filled the water, you know, in the engines and all, and get them ready to go out. <laughs> I like, the, you know, the coal and all like that. So what did they do when they came back from the war? Well, my, they went on the railroad then to work. What did they do on the railroad? Just laboring. That's all they, that's all you could do. You, that's all you could do, no matter what you. They didn't have things like they do now. We have black engineers and, 
and farming and all that, but not, not now, not then. And my sister Elva worked on the railroad too. You remember during the war, the women went on the railroad and worked on the track, and they went down to. As, I don't know if she went to Washington all the way to Washington, but they went all the way down to Coma Park. And all my that. father was a railroad man for 43 years. My mother never worked. And what did your father do on the railroad? He was a track man. He won. He ran one of those little speeders to go up and down the uh, tracks to keep the tracks open for the cars. In 1959, um, the railroad had a local payroll of $6 million. That's a lot of money for 1959. And that basically means that those railroaders earned that money. That money was deposited in the local bank. And then that local bank then loaned all that money out, or not loaned all the money out, but you know, basically it was a circular flow economy of $6 million per year. It's a lot of money. So by the 60s and the 70s, when, that, uh, when the jobs went away, that $6 million went away. And that was a huge economic impact on Brunswick. So by the 70s and the 80s, um, those businesses that relied on the railroad and the railroad workers and the railroad families, it was just business sense not to be here anymore. I think like in the late 60s, you had the major um, businesses kind of, uh, Kaplan's went out of business, uh, Gross uh, Store, or at least the Gross Brothers and, and that operation started started winding down. Um, you know, that's when the grocery that one grocery store, you know, kind of downsized its operation. So, you know, you had all of these uh, uh, businesses really really suffer during that economic recession, if you will. Brunswick was a railroad town. There were railroad yards in Brunswick, which ran from almost from Knoxville to Point of Rocks, and it was supposed to have been, and probably was, the largest single company-owned railroad yard in the world, and it was owned by the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, or as it was known, the B&O Railroad, and almost all of the men in Brunswick, once they got out of high school, ordinarily married their high school sweethearts and went to work on the railroad. And my dad went in the grocery business so he could help feed the railroaders. My father uh, went to work on the railroad when he was probably about 15 and uh, was a machinist. And uh, he worked as a machinist for a number of years and later he was uh, superintendent of the shops in Brunswick. Well, um, Glenn Cooper was far marshal down there, and he lived next door, and he told me that they were hiring. So I went down, and Mr. Selby was a supervisor, and my mother knew him and his wife and all, and uh, he said, and he knew her, knew her too, and he says, you don't want to work here, he says, you get all dirty and all. I said, well, little dirt never hurt anyone, so he said, well. So I went to work. <laughs> well, we didn't repair them. We tamped ties. But see, the rails, they were too heavy and all. But now tamping ties, if 
the dirt, if you see a train go by and it kind of sink down like, well, it needs dirt underneath those ties, and that's a call of tamping the ties. And we'd have jack up the rail and then you know, tamp the dirt. And we'd take the temperature of the coal pile. They had two great big coal piles, and um, they were real high. And they'd have to take the temperature. They're afraid of spontaneous combustion. And we put these thermometers down in these pipes that had about six of them, three on each coal pile. And we take the temperature of it. So you worked on it with a group of all women? Yeah. Mr. Uh, had one man with us, Mr. Uh, Jim Turner. And Mr. Um, Weber was our supervisor over all of us, because there were two or three different gangs. It was uh, the brakeman would be out on the front of the engine, or out on the front of the trains, and he would disconnect and connect the um, cars. Well, many years before you guys saw this, there used to be a coal tipple in Brunswick. They would push the coal cars up on top of this high ramp down at the, down at the um, uh, roundhouse. And I mean, it was like probably 75 feet up in the air, and they had a steep ramp up rails, and they push cars up on it, and they dump the coal cars, and they store the coal there, and then they pull the steam engines underneath, and the um, the coal car back under underneath of it that supplied the steam engine, and they'd fill it, and that was called the coal tipple, and it was right there by the roundhouse. Well, it was a gentleman in Brunswick, um, Raymond Cullen, his first day on the railroad. My daddy was running the steam engine, and Raymond was a brakeman. And my daddy was running the steam engine to fill the coal tipples. Well, he took Raymond up, and just as he got to the top, he shut the steam engine down, and he leaned out and said, I'm low on steam. I've got to wait for the steam to build up. Well, this was his welcome to the railroad because here he is 75 feet out in the air and he's hanging over the side of the car and just letting him say, you know, said, Here's, this is a great joke that the railroaders would pull, the engineers would pull on a new brakeman because that was like the first job they'd do is be up running up on the coal tipple. And then they went on up and dumped the coal and came back down. And uh, the conductors, they basically, the conductors, the engineer ran the train, the conductor would, or ran the engine, the conductor would run the train. It was, and then the brakemen actually trained them to become conductors. And the ultimate job would be, uh, my father's probably favorite job when he was an engineer, was running the um, mud cars. And he had a run to go from Brunswick to um, uh, Washington, D.C. And then a great run would be when they got to go from uh, Brunswick to Philadelphia, because they made big money to go to Philadelphia. I guess I didn't expect the closeness of the, you know, I knew that I'd be moving into town and I knew I was a newcomer and I expected some of that until people got to know you, but I didn't expect the how close that bond is. And I didn't understand it until I realized that this was a railroad town and that they all came, you know, majority of people started here in the same job and and so they were they were they were a company town, a boom town. And that's why they're so much tighter, I think, than many other communities. There isn't a part of Brunswick history that I read about or know about that there isn't something said 
Um, the, the East End Elementary School was, is, was built on B&O property that they gave. Uh, the Baptist Church, the B&O paid for all the concrete steps in the front of the Baptist Church. I mean, everything you read and know about the B&O was a very, very generous uh, paycheck for the people in Brunswick. Back during the war, they had a lot of troop trains go through here, and that was, uh, they expected them to be on time. If they weren't on time, then you had a lot of officials question you about it. I remember that uh, one time they had something that didn't go through for some reason. They were here and wanted to know all about it. And I remember my mother wouldn't wake him up to tell them. He'd come home and gone to bed and she wouldn't call him. Because, but you know, you were under pressure all the time for that type of thing. When I was a little boy, everybody worked on the railroad. And uh, the changing of the, um, uh, from the um, diesel, from steam locomotives. My daddy was a, a farm on the steam locomotives. And my grandfather was an engineer. Uh, a couple of my uncles were brakemen. And uh, when they switched from uh, steam to locomotives, I know there was a great controversy, and that was, um, they were trying to do away with farming. And the Frederick News Post was writing articles and editorials about the feather bedding on the railroad. Well, I'd see my daddy come home and work hard, and it wasn't feather bedding. And um, so, as the railroad declined, and they, and it was, and it, it wasn't that the railroad was declining. It was as they were making changes in Brunswick. That Brunswick wasn't going to be the hub. That we had the roundhouse. And as a little boy, I was in the third grade. The whistle would blow at 11 o'clock and during the day, at 3 o'clock when the crews would finish, at 7 o'clock at night, at 11 o'clock at night, it was just, the whistle would blow. And if there was a fire in Brunswick, they'd blow the whistle on the, this before we had central alarm, they'd blow the whistle to let you know if the fire, because we had wards back then, Ward 1, Ward 2, and Ward 3, well, ward, if it was on New York Hill, that was Ward 1. If they blew it like X number of times, and I can't remember how much it was. That told the farmer, the volunteer farmer, because they didn't have radios or anything, that the fire was on New York Hill. If it was on the, if it was on Winters Hill, it blew so many times. If it was on the West End, it blew so many times. If it was outside Brunswick, it blew. And one evening at seven o'clock, I had the opportunity to blow the whistle, and I went down and I blew the whistle. My daddy had to be down at the roundhouse. And I blew the whistle, and I went to school the next day to say, man, I blew the whistle last night. Well, my friends are all going, no, you didn't. Well, how do you prove you blew the whistle? <laughs> and so, But anyway, I, I got to blow the whistle, and I think um, watching them tear down the old coal tipple, the water tire, the um, uh, roundhouse, and that was the oldest roundhouse in the nation. Um, that's why I've been such an advocate um, strong advocate to um, uh, save the uh, WB Tire because we've lost so much of that tradition of Brunswick of what was what made us such a strong community. And since most of the people worked on the railroad, most, most of us had free passes. So, of course, I guess that doesn't happen anymore. Right. And they had a lot more. Uh, 
they didn't have as many commuter trains and things like that, but they ran at uh, intervals which you could go down in the morning and come back in the evening or later at night if you wanted to go sightseeing or something like that. Well, and you could have to get a pass, you could go to Washington because we'd get a pass and go down and see shows and it was good for about a month. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, just, but it was only one trip. But if you got a good conductor, he wouldn't take it. He'd let you keep it and come down again. Used to ride the doodle bug, get on the doodle bug. Go to Hagerstown shopping. My yeah. mother and I, we'd get on, Eileen, all of us would get on the doodle bug, go to Hagerstown shop, catch the doodle bug back. And then we could go down to the heck company on before school started. Yeah, student pass. Yeah. Know. Well, I went to uh, Florida on a student pass when I was 15, 12, maybe, thir 15. Went to Colorado on a student pass because you had to go to different places. I don't know how old I was then. Went with Geraldine and the Galladay family. But you could get a student pass and only pay a penny a mile on a different railroad. You could go on the B&O as far as St. Louis, and then like, what did you hit in St. Louis? Something. And you'd pay a penny mile from St. You know, I never Louis got to, to Colorado or something. So it was very reasonable to travel if your parent or somebody worked on the railroad. Before I started school, even the first grade, and then going first grade, and when you got a bath every day, because in the summertime <laughs> especially, because of the colder, you went out and played. You know, you really had to, you had to, uh, well, I mean, either I sleep on the floor, I guess. You but no, but it was you just—it was just colder. You swept your porch every, every morning day. from the cinders. Uh, and I can recall when I was in the first grade, my father—he was a, a flagman on the railroad, brakeman, one of the two. But you used to leave your window open. Everybody didn't have telephone then, and at that time, you would—they would open their windows and they had callers, and the callers would come by and they would yell out your name. Molar. And then they tell you what turn you had, whether it was a Hagerstown turnaround or something, cattle cars or whatever, they would call you. And that's how the, the people that didn't have telephones received their calls. And the, the callers that worked down at the caller's office, that's what they did. They had to walk all over town. Fifty-eight, I made a little league as a nine-year-old. Um, I was in the fourth grade. Gary Carter uh, made a little league at that same time. We had played minor league together. Um, and minor league back then, you didn't even have uniforms. Um, and uh, my first catcher's glove had come from SNN's Cats. I was a catcher. Gary Carter was a pitcher. We played for the Yankees on the minor league. And I thought Yogi Berra was the greatest thing in the world. So um, playing in minor league and then moving up the little league and I had the fortune to play for Mr. Red Halls and Mr. Bobby Dawson uh, who are our coaches just absolutely and there's a tree and a plaque up at the little league today from uh, his 1961-62 Cubs that um, said they taught us more than baseball they taught us about life I mean it could be uh, he taught us that you could be 10 runs down in the bottom of the six, two outs, and a pop-up going to the pitcher. And said, boys, he might miss it. And you'd be there, he can miss that ball, he can miss that ball, and he can still come back. And I think that's what taught me so much about life is to never give up. And um, that no matter what happens to you, 
you know, you can get beat by 20 runs today, but tomorrow you can come back and beat that same team. I was a, a coach in Brunswick Little League. I was president of Brunswick Little League, um, president of Brunswick Community Clubhouse for Kids. So just that kind of, it's really interesting to have a guy come up to you that you don't recognize. Um, I had this happen about a month ago, but uh, had a Navy anchor on his arm, had his baby, you know, on the right hand. He goes, you don't recognize me. You don't know me, do you? And I was like, no. And he was like, you coached me in Little League. And it's just amazing because you always you always think of that person as the 11 year old kid or the eight year old out in left field playing with the dandelions, you know. But um, um, it's just kind of interesting. You don't really realize your impact upon youth until they come back and actually reflect how good you know that experience was upon them. I also got involved in the little league baseball when my first son started playing, and uh, the coach asked me to. The manager asked me to help him, and I said, okay. And uh, so I ended up in the minor league. I was in the minor league four years, and then they uh, formed a new team. Uh, they had only had four teams in, in major and the minor, and they added the fifth team, so I had the uh, major league Pirates. And uh, so I, I coached that for 17 years. So my kids were gone, and, 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 and in fact, I had a, ended up had a grandson played for me. <laughs> but uh, the sports in Brunswick is, is, is great for the kids, and uh, they have a lot of dedicated people that spend a lot of time and, and really help these kids. And I enjoyed it from the fact that I realized that I was, had a tremendous impact on these people, on these boys, and uh, what you teach them. And my son-in-law helped me the first couple of years in uh, in baseball. And either before or after a game, we would sit down and talk with a team and relate how things in life are going to be. It, you could pair it with things that happen in, in baseball, in sports. And uh, I've had a couple of them come back and tell me about the impact I had on their life. I said it was the greatest time they ever, ever had, and uh, it really makes you feel good. I think more than a, more than a lot of times, we'll be walking someplace, and this big, big boy, much taller than Claire and much bigger than Claire, will say, "Mr. Ebersole, you still look the same." And Claire will look at him, and I know right away he doesn't remember, can't visualize who he is. So we finally figure out who he is. Or Claire will say, well, what position did you play? And as soon as the kid says what position, then he knows who it is. <laughs> and and all of the boys say the same thing. We learn more than baseball from you. And that was, it's heartwarming to hear that from the, from the, from the boys. Yeah, we had, uh, well, Mike Moss told Jackie when his father died, and he passed away not too long ago. And... Uh, Told her who she told him who she was, and he said, "Oh, he said that man, he said, had more impact on my life." He said, "I thought what he was telling us when we was playing ball was a bunch of bull," and he said, "I realize now what he, you know." And he said it had a real impact on on what he turned out to be. So that, that makes you feel good. Brunswick has always been a great baseball town. In fact, we produced a major league baseball player whose name was Red McQuillan. And he had his best 
years during World War II when he was in the surface. But he was a very good hitter in the minor leagues and then came to the majors with a team in St. Louis, which was then known as the St. Louis Browns. Yeah. And girls played. Girls oh, played, she was yeah. the best pitcher in the league was Dolores Klein. Yeah, she was the best was up pitcher on New York around Hill. here. And Ambrose. Ambrose. But that was a New York Hill team, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then you had a Winters Hill team, an East End, a West End team. East End, West End, Winters New Hill. York Hill, Winters Hill, and, and Knoxville. Yeah, we had, well, you had like more than enough kids to play. And then Knoxville, were they the best team or they just had the best uniform? The, we, best thought, uniform. we thought so. Well, what made us so good in baseball back then, and I think what carries on a tradition, is we'd play three on three and you'd be playing down at the city park and you'd have to cover center field and left field. Right field was out. If you had a ball to the right side of second base, you were automatically out. So you, and you had to kind of work the baseball. Uh, we had a short stop and we had a pitcher where the pitcher had to cover first base. So when the first baseman or the shortstop would pick up a ground ball, you had to be running and looking over your shoulder because if you didn't, if somebody's going to stick one in your ear, you had to catch it on the run. And I think that's what made us such good ball players. And it's what, you know, a great tradition of baseball came out of Brunswick. And you played, there was always baseball games on Winters Hill. Um, every day at 10 o'clock, we'd meet at the high school, the old high school up on 4th Avenue. We'd play baseball at 12 o'clock. Then we'd go home at 12 o'clock to have lunch. And then at 1 o'clock, swimming pool would open. But you weren't allowed to go swimming if you had a baseball game that day. Uh, that was a strict rule because basically if you've been there swimming, it takes your legs away from you. Shear Stadium was, uh, well, they bulldozed a lot of it. That's where the high school is now. But uh, when you went out Route 464, there was banks on both sides, and the stadium was down to your right. It seemed like it sat down in a hole, and there were, <clears throat> you could pull in up, on part of it and sit and look out over the stadium. It's one of the better stadiums in the in the county at that time. Well, I remember the very first day, the very first game when they played up, the first field was up just east of the swimming pool, where uh -huh. it was up in that area there. Uh -huh. And that was really a big deal when we had a, when the Little League played, I mean, uh, there was a crowd up there. Everybody came up. It was really some super interest. And, Seven Dime was, uh, was a place that everybody had to go to. Uh, on Friday night and Saturday night, uh, uh, the stores was, the store was always crowded. You could hardly get to, get to walk around in the store. I used to uh, floor walk, but uh, I would uh, help the cashier when she ran around to pick up the money and whatnot. Uh, just just watch over things on, on a Friday night and Saturday night. And then we had uh, four windows there uh, on the street and I had to trim those. Uh, we changed them about every three months. I had, I had almost everything in it that uh, you could dream of in clothing, shoes, Work clothes, work clothes, and dress clothes, and whatnot. And same way with Kaplan's. Kaplan's had first-class stuff all the way. 
had men's Art uh, uh, Chapter and Mark suits, which were first class back in those days, and Stetson hats and whatnot. I can remember in the 80s, and at that time I lived in Knoxville, but we still would make a shopping trip. I know that you'll find this this interesting, but we would make a weekly shopping trip to Brunswick just to go. There was one grocery store still in town, and it had one checkout lane, and um, there was the dime store next door. And I looked so forward to going to the dime store because there was a toy aisle. And I can just remember being in that toy aisle, and of course the person setting up above and the and the thing would yell at us for playing with the toys. But that that was like we couldn't afford the toys; we never bought the toys really. But that was my chance to play with these toys. That that, uh, and I just always remember the highlight of coming to Brunswick was to go to this dime store and and, and look at these toys. And I rarely, I, I barely remember the uh, the grocery store. Um, but I just remember it being so run down and that it was just one one checkout lane where there was like four, but none of them were operating. And I just remember the Kaplan building being vacant. And with my family, with their generations, every building had a name. It was the Kaplan building, the Horon building. And for me, though, there was no real names. I mean, the dime store will always be the dime store. But like, you know, the Kaplan building for me has always been a vacant building for most of my adult life. The Horon building has always been a vacant building for, for most of my adult lives. So. You know, I think that there's a little bit of of a hope and a future that Brunswick, especially the economic situation in downtown, will be better. And I think that that pe there's generations of people who have forgotten or just don't know about how great it was at some point in time. So at some point in time, I think those two things will mesh. And I kind of feel like the keeper of that until, you know what I mean, until at some point in time that gets meshed together. I worked at the theater and and uh, the Imperial Theater here in town. And I started out by being a floor sweeper. And I graduated up to running, actually running the projectors. And... On Saturday night, we had uh, the fire company had uh, dances over there every Saturday night. And not only did I work at the the Imperial Theater as a projectionist, I used to go over and hang out at the firehouse. And I helped around the fire hall until I was 16, then I become a member. And I'd go to the Saturday night dances, which was we had some wonderful stars there. I mean, fantastic. And the, the first thing that comes to my mind is Guy Lombardo, Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller Band. They're all big, big name bands. And then we had Tex Ritter, Little Jimmy Dickens, Jimmy Dean, Patsy Cline, which I also, as a young man, danced with her. Uh, Smitty Irwin was in that band. Uh, Roy Clark, Billy Grammer, they're all, they all went on to become, you know, famous musicians. My grandmother lived on uh, Virginia Avenue, and I'd walk to the theater 
five, six years old, we used to have to walk down through the graveyard behind the, the old Brunswick firehouse now. And it's sad to look at that now because there was many, 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 many stones in that graveyard and they're gone. And where they're at, I have no idea. But as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid, I used to used to hop, hop the stones, going to the theater. Saturday matinee was 14 cents, and uh, I went into the Betts Mills was a confectionery store right beside the theater, and I spent one cent for. A, in a bubblegum gum machine and I threw my 13 cents up at the window to get in to the movie and Mrs. Cannon says you got 13 cents you got to get another penny so I had to go back up to my grandmother's crying because I couldn't get in the theater and I missed the cartoons to get another penny come down and get my 14 cent ticket to go in the theater I worked one summer at the uh, theater, theater, <laughs> Imperial Theater. That was a blast. And you had said you'd talk to another ge uh, gentleman that had worked there. Mm -hmm. But that summer, I w it was Sharon Porter sold tickets. Bill Huffman and Jackie Porter ran the, uh, I'd say, the whole process. And then John Spitzer ran the cameras upstairs or the whatever they called those movie cameras. And then I sold candy. But I was only about 13 or 14 years old, so you got paid like $1 a week. And Sharon and Bill were working because they were trying to have their wedding, which was probably 1956, I guess. And it, it would be great because you could see half the movie. You never got to see the whole movie because you have to sell candy when they have their break. But you'd have to go down the basement to get the corn. And, of course, you'd kick the container because you didn't know what was in the corn. So... It just was one of those things, and Imperial Theater had those red doors. Saturday afternoons, you'd go downtown to um, um, watch a movie. I think it was 10 cents to watch a movie. Where did you watch a movie? At the Imperial Theater. Sonny Cannon owned it. Um, as an aside, my father was the um, uh, one year at Christmas. My father was played Santa Claus. And Tommy Lake was sitting beside of me. And we were there, and they gave out candy, a little box of candy and an orange. And they gave you a free movie. And we were there, and I said, my father's playing Santa Claus. And um, he went home and told his mom and daddy that he knew who Santa Claus was. It was Charlie Smith's father. Um, Beast Mills? Yeah. Mills's confectionery or something? Drugstore. Drugstore. And you could go in there. See, you're going to go to the movie theater. The movie theater was, what, about 10 or 15 cents? Well, on Saturday was big because I don't know what it was at night, but on Saturday they had the matinee, and you would go out there at noon or 1 o'clock, and if you had a quarter, yep, you could 14 cents to get in the movie. 14, yeah. And you had 11 cents left over, and you could go over to Mills's and get... A college ice, which was a cup of crushed ice with a dip of vanilla ice, ice cream in the bottom, bottom and some cherry syrup on it. Well, that got your quarter. <laughs> that was your that you're out. Between of the yeah, 
but that's the kind of thing. It was just so, so, uh, just another nice thing about Brunswick. But a quarter could get you a lot of entertainment at the uh, movie theater and then theater next to That was a big thing in Brunswick. You could go to the matinee for five cents on Saturdays. Oh, I think they had a big uh, fan or something right down front because everybody could try to go down front where this big fan was blowing. It's a great big square one. But that's, I think that's all the air condition they had. The Imperial Theater, out across mm -hmm. from where the fire hall, mm -hmm. yeah. the fire hall downtown is. What kind of movies did they have? Oh, one Saturday had uh, Monday and Tuesday was the same thing. Wednesday was different. Thursday and Friday was the same one. Saturday was a matinee. Yeah, and I went to quite a few of them. Action <laughs> movies or country, country, uh, Gene Autry or yeah, Gene Autry. Roy Rogers. Or, I all those. To a Mills's drugstore. Uh, uh, and get college ices or, so, or something to drink to take into the theater with us because they didn't have any. They didn't have popcorn or anything like that. So we had to go next door and get whatever we wanted to take into the theater with us. There were a lot of stores. There was right. the Five and Dime, there was Kaplan's, there was a lace store, there was Warnsis. Yeah. Um, what else? Shoe stop, shoe stop. Yeah, yeah. Shoe, sto shoe store uh, where they fix shoes. And that was built place if you to wanted to get a, <clears throat> a refrigerator, you could go and buy, you know, get it. I forgot about the <clears throat> whistle stop. That was my first job when I was still <clears throat> in school. I used to work in the evenings and sometimes on the weekend as a waitress. Uh, they kept sold oh, dinners, meals. sandwiches, oh, milkshakes. Anything you wanted, they had. Growing up in Brunswick, you'd walk downtown and you could start, like we had up on New York Hill, you'd go into the grocery store up there, was Paul Harrison's store. And um, all the kids on New York Hill, everybody knew you. You'd be sled riding, and God bless Paul Harrison, he'd, we'd come in there cold, wet from sled riding, because you'd sled ride down B Street Hill there. And you'd walk in his store soaking wet, and. He'd allow you to dry off and stand over the furnace and get warm, and back outside you go. And feed bags that were flowered at different designs. And when you go on the farm, the lady would come out and she'd look at these designs on these bags, and you had to move these 100 pound bags all over the truck until they found the one they want because they might have had that pattern in the last load. <laughs> and what they did, they made dresses and aprons and, and caps and stuff out of Those feed bags material was interesting. Mr. Ketzel, who lived up in, around Gaplin, was our egg man. And of course, he would have gotten the chicken feed from the same people that Claire was selling to. And he would, when he came with his eggs and his produce on the back of his truck, he would have these piles all folded up of the fabrics, the, the feed bags. And my mother made all of our clothes, especially the two girls. And so when he found two or three the same fabric, he would save those aside for my mother because he knew she would like those. And that, that, I think I was in the sixth grade before I had my first store-bought dress. And if you look back at my school pictures, I think we had, in high school I had a few that had uh, 
a sweater and a skirt, but uh, all of my elementary school, were, we were all in feed sack dresses, and they were beautiful. But a little history about the museum. The cornerstone was laid July 4th, 1904. At that time, it was a Redmond's Club. The improved order of the Redmond, they were a social group, uh, did things for the community. Uh, and then in the mid-30s, it was purchased by the Eagles Club, the Fraternal Order of Eagles, who are now up on the hill by, by the elementary school. They had it, and they had a club down there with, with a, a bar and a dance floor. And, uh, it's rumored that Patsy Cline sang there, but we know many other uh, people did sing there. And then in the mid-70s, we, the Potomac Foundation, Brunswick Railroad Museum, purchased it from, from the Eagles Club, and since then it's been ongoing. The CNO Canal National Historic Park rents part of the building from us for their visitor center. We have a gift shop there. Uh, model train exhibit and life in the 1900s. While I was in school, I worked for uh, the Kaplan family, Mr. Meyer, Miss Fanny, Mr. Amos, and I did everything from a stock boy would do at a department store from wash windows, burn trash, run errands, just do a lot of things like that. And as a result, I got to do, I think, just about everybody in Brunswick over that four or five year period. Is, um Miss Fanny would go to New York every year, and she had curtains, just like the curtains here. She pulled down curtains in front of the store windows so you couldn't see in. And in her Christmas displays, they do the Christmas displays, and there'd be two, three hundred people standing there on a Friday evening, because Brunswick downtown Friday was payday. Every other Friday was payday. The railroad payday. This was huge. And the railroaders made great money. And so on Friday night, Miss Fanny had gone to New York to see what they were doing with their Christmas windows. And then she'd open up the Christmas windows and there'd be their Christmas displays. And it was the coolest thing in the world to stand there and watch them open up the Christmas displays. They didn't have a hospital until <clears throat> the area of World War II and just a little after. A local doctor, Dr. Schnaufer, built and started a hospital there, but it only lasted for eh, maybe five years, and then became an apartment house. And it's still there. It's and sometime still there. if you go up uh, B Street. Oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, it's a big white I building, apartment <laughs> building. It used to be a hospital. Yeah, my dad that. And the fun. nurses' residence was right next right door. Right next door and it was called the Schnuffer Hospital. And okay. then when Dad bought the farm, he had already begun a grocery business. In other words, he ran a little grocery store. And the building in which the little grocery store was was just down over the hill. And this area, or the road that comes up here, is called Maple Avenue. But when I was growing up, it was called Winter's Hill because it was where my great-grandfather and grandfather and father's farm had been. Mr. Meyer wanted to clear out the upstairs. There was clothing and things in there from probably the 30s and 40s or maybe before. And uh, I can recall a time where I was taking stuff out, actually take it out back and burn it, a lot of those old things. And I recall one time we had these, like these slouch hats that you see the old golfers you used to wear, and I was up there throwing them away, and I said, there were those wool hats. I thought, man, these are nice hats. So 
I must have been in about the 11th grade in school, so I thought I'd keep a couple of them. And I threw a couple in the back up there. There was more up there. And I was wearing them. I went down to the pool room wherever, and some of the guys saw them, and four or five of my buddies, they liked them. So we were wearing them around town. Well, Mr. Amos decided it's a saleable item. <laughs> we're not going to throw these away. So he put them out on the out on the shelves out there to try to sell them, which they didn't do. But when I would take clothes up on West B Street to get them altered, uh, Mr. Amos had, a, had an old car, and he used to have a problem that I would stay that long. And I remember Mrs. Cage uh, used to say, she'd look out the window if I was having a glass of tea or a sandwich, she'd tell me, here he comes. And he, if I stayed there long enough, I knew Mr. Amos was going to come by to see where I was. Kaplan's, and I was 14 years old. You know, I say this was such a great time growing up in Brunswick. I went in and had a black coat with sheep skin lining. I thought it was the neatest coat in the world. And I was always impressed there with um, Mr. Kaplan. They had shoe racks, floor shine shoes. And they'd go all the way to the ceiling. And they had a ladder that would slide along on a rack. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, that he'd slide that ladder and run up, get the shoes, and then come back down. But the coat, I had $8, and it was supposed to snow. And the coat was $14. And I had $8. I'd saved $8. And because I mowed grass and I did work in people's yards and whatever to, to make money. And I sold, uh, we had a damson tree and I'd sell damsons for uh, $6 a bushel. Well, damsons are about that big. So you know how I many you got to pick for, uh, to fill up a bushel. But I, that was one of the ways I'd you know, make money. But I had $8 and the coat was $14. And I was there and I said, I'd really like to have this coat. Can I? Put eight dollars down on it, and I'll come back. It's supposed to snow, and can I come back and pay you for it after it's done? After I, he said, um, "What's your name, son?" And I told him who it was. He said, "Who's your daddy?" And I told him who my daddy was. Kind of got to take a deep breath. Um, and he said, "You come from good stock. Take the coat." And uh, he said, "Pay me." when the snows. And I came back, paid him my $6, but he gave me credit when I was 14 years old. And I think that's what made Brunswick so good to grow up in that time. Mr. Warrens was a rabbi, and he had a store down near where the YMCA was. It's burned uh, down now. That's all burned down, and I'm on a little there. park area there. But he had a grocery store and a clothing store where everybody in Brunswick knew Mr. Warrens because you could go in there and the prices on his shoes and stuff was all negotiable. Yeah. And everybody went down. It wasn't up to the quality because the Kaplan store was high quality. They had the, the best quality of shoes back Alligator, then, like Florsheim shoes clothing. and the finest of suits and men's clothing. And Miss Fanny, she furnished the store with clothes. She went to New York. Uh, to pick up to stay the fashions in the window and the ladies would buy clothes, dresses, everything. Captains had a nice uh, uh, display of clothing and, and uh, all that and a lot of people came from all over the county really. Didn't you have uh, to help set up the windows sometimes? And, and it was a little difficult. That was one of the unpleasant things that Miss <laughs> Fanny when she had her, she was redoing her windows uh, she, I had to help her, and then you're right out there on Potomac Street, and 
we're taking mannequins down and putting that up, and then we're dressing the other ones and everything. And when you're 14 or 15 years old, and there's this little lady in there that's directing you around everything but on a leash, but she's telling you to do this and pick up that, and I'm there, and then my buddies are riding by on the bike waving at me and gesturing or whatever, and then it, it wasn't the best thing I like to do, but Miss Fanny was just wonderful to me. And she made it very clear that I worked for her and not for anybody else down there. But Mr. Meyer told me I really worked for him. Things that's come and gone in, in Brunswick, uh, like the Shell Station, where the newspaper is today, that used to be a Shell Station. Mm -hmm. uh, then it was turned into what they call Fast Eddie's. He had a little food place there. Uh, Warrens' downtown had burnt down. The YMCA, I remember that. That was on, a, I want to think, either Friday or Saturday night because we was having something at the firehouse. And, and uh, Gary Urie was assistant chief. I think Rick Campbell was, was the chief. Uh, but he was out of town. And Gary and I was the first two firefighters on the scene of that, that fire of YMCA. Uh, that's gone. Uh, the shoe shop across from the firehouse now, that burnt, burnt down, that's gone. The old mill over by the canal, that's gone. Cages is gone, and I think that was, that was fire. So we've lost our share of buildings uh, due to fire, and nothing's come in to replace them, you know. At Will Ryan's, uh, they had an ice cream bar, and uh, we sold a lot of medicine. Dr. Horan had an office there. He also went out some nights to people's houses. He made a lot of his own medicine. He made his all his cough syrup in the wintertime. He made salve for burns and cuts. Um, I sold many, many, many little envelopes to people with to children that had the croup. Back then, many, many children in Brunswick had the croup. The winters were bad and cold and a lot of snow, and uh, we sold them little fruit pills, 25 cents a dozen. The lace store was a clothing store. Mm -hmm. You could get most whatever you want, and they sold a lot of material. My sister Bernice worked there for years and years and years until she got married. That was my youngest sister. So why was it called the lace store? I don't know why Mr. Gordon called it the lace store, but he named it. It was his. They probably sold lace for mm -hmm. for, for clothes or mm -hmm. crocheting or something. The building is still there. The building is still there. It's next to the park area that's mm -hmm. where the uh, several stores. There was a jewelry store that all burned down, and now they have the park with the mural. It's the it's that first building going the other way. It was right uh, close to the Western Auto.
where the antique store is now. Mm -hmm. It used to be Western Auto. And between Western Auto and the lay store was a liquor store. Where the veterinarian. And then after that was a big jewelry store, and back up behind the jewelry store was Snopper's Garage, uh, also Luke Dar had a beer garden there next to the lace store. When you got to the bottom of that hill, it was Hilda Barker's grocery store. If you went up one block, it was your um, Gum Spring Hollow Park. And right up along Gum Spring Hollow Park was Dr. Cal's office, a uh, Chinese doctor. And then you could walk on up that street and you came to the Moose Lodge. A couple doors from the Moose Lodge, uh, your chief police lived, Mr. Merriman. Up a little farther was a laundromat run by Mr. Do uh, Merriman's daughter, Jenny. On up to the corner was a filling station. And across there from the filling station was the big rail yard and the YMCA. Uh, after you pass um, Jack Cage's, was Jack Cage's garage, there was a post office. Then if you came up a little further, there was Dr. Strother's office, who was another doctor. From Dr. Strother's was uh, old Mr. Vernes' store. It was a big clothing store too, and it carried a lot of men's railroad clothes. Right beside Mr. Wernsch's, you could go up the hill, and there was a little Jewish church there that is not there now. Uh, if you came down from that Jewish church, about a block was that Schnaufer's garage. If you went up the hill there, on up the hill, was Schnaufer's hospital. Uh, Then I guess on um, the left side of the road, uh, after you passed Dr. Smith's office, was a men's club that had a clay Indian standing outside. And then if you went on across, there was the Brunswick Railroad Station. And when you came up that street from the railroad station, it was a beer garden called My Sister's Place. Very, very rough. They had a woman who was the... Bouncer. Bouncer. And when they would drink too much or fight, she would throw them out right on the street. We always had a lot of police over there. That's where Mummer's restaurant is. And uh, around the corner from there was a jewelry store. Up the street a little further was Rocky's Big Food Market. And then there was um, the dime store. My sister Mary Lloyd worked there for years and years. She's married to Sam Lloyd that lives here in Brunswick. Uh, she was then. Uh, she's dead now. 
uh, after you passed the dime store was a little restaurant, Watson's. Very good. Very good food, very cheap. They had a big business. And then when you crossed the street there at Watson's, there was the big Kaplan store that sold fine clothes. Mr. Kaplan also did uh, tax papers for people. Uh, and right below Mr. Kaplan's was a great big church that's closed now. Also, all the way down there to the railroad, um, a lady who was walking in her sleep one night come out on that railroad and the train ran over her and she was killed. Um, after you passed Kaplan's store, there was another big church that closed. It's a restaurant now. Beans in the Belfry. Yeah. Then you could walk on out from there. Um, wasn't much out there till you came to the Tivoli Theater. Right beside the Tivoli Theater was an ice cream shop. After you passed the Tivoli was Harry George's furniture store that's closed now. Then there wasn't anything else till you got out to uh, the big garage, Littons, who sold cars and repaired cars. There was a very, very nice man worked there. Gene Bowers. Gene Bowers. My son bought a car from Two him four. when he came home, home from Vietnam. Also back to Horines, uh, right across the street was a great big bank and then a little drugstore. And if you went up the street farther, it was a big appliance store by the Gross Brothers owned it. And then there was Miss Hines's restaurant. And then up at the very corner was a filling station. And then you didn't pass any more business till you got to your old fire company right across from the Tivoli. Also coming into Brunswick from Frederick, on Petersville Road, they had a beer garden called the Swing Inn. It was owned by black people. But the white men went there too. They were all friends. They worked together on a railroad. It was just a beer garden, but you went there for entertainment. You went, you could dance and you could do, they drank beer. If you were old enough to drink beer, you could do that. And they, the children would be outside playing and, well, so that's, that's what the swing in was. What did they do with the sewing factory? Like, what did they make? Oh, they made uh, pants, jackets. They did what they call piecework. So there were a lot of ladies in town. Some people would make short arms, and some people would put this in and that in. And old Mr. Marks and them uh, ran the factory, and it was a big-time sewing factory. They did a lot of production of, of men's clothing, I think more than women's, and later they got women's clothing. But uh, it was Price and Electric before it was a sewing factory, and I don't know what they did. They did those printed circuit boards, didn't they? No, no. I don't. I don't components, electrical components. My mother, she mother not only worked, worked up here, she worked in Frederick for a number of years, mm -hmm. and then uh, my mother worked at the Price and Electric. And then too. when they came over here, she worked. She never worked when it was sewing factory. She worked at Price Electric uh, yeah. until she. But we came from an era where our parents had just started. The women started working right. out of the home.
because, you know, they didn't before then. And a lot of people we knew, their parents didn't work, but... And both your mothers worked yep. full-time. Yep, yep. I grew up in a wonderful family. Uh, we had, um, my mom's family was from the Brunswick area. She actually was born in Stanley, Virginia, and moved in Brunswick when she moved to Brunswick when she was three years old. Lived right below the Park Heights Cemetery, and then when she was eight years old, they bought the house which my mom still lives in today on 117 Fifth Avenue, and um, they moved there. She had seven. There were seven brothers and sisters. My grandmother and grandfather. And my grandfather was an um, engineer on the railroad. My grandmother was a stay-at-home mom. And um, they had, my grandfather had cows in Brunswick, pigs in Brunswick, chickens in Brunswick, and five acres of garden in Brunswick uh, to raise his family during the Depression and things. And sometime in the early 40s, Daddy decided he wanted to be a minister. So he took a home college course through Finley College while he was working and uh, that was back, back during the war. And uh, so in 1943, he got his first charge. And it was in the Maryland, Virginia eldership. And the churches were the one on uh, Brunswick Street here, Brunswick. And the Church of God out of Locust Valley. He had two churches. My parents were uh, Delbert and Mary Cooper. My dad worked on the railroad. My grandfather was a conductor on the railroad. Um, so he was Dennis Cooper, and my dad was a painter and a car person, car, I don't know, car shop uh, on the railroad. My mother worked in a sewing factory here in Brunswick. Um, it was up by the old high school, the sewing factory was, worked there for years. I remember my dad went to work as a fireman, or, or rather as a brakeman on the railroad. We moved to Brunswick. And for my earliest years in Brunswick, I lived down on Potomac Street in a house that, which is now across from the Brunswick Ambulance facility. Then it was Bill Winter's store across the street. And I was lived there for a couple of years. I my said, father was a railroad man. He uh, was a brakeman, retired as a, as a brakeman on the b and Railroad. Uh, he also served in World War II. He was in an accident in Belgium where the, uh, he was in the transportation department and the caboose he was riding in went over a, an embankment. He got injured and was sent home early. My mother was a housewife, stayed at home, raised three children. Actually, I can trace uh, my family to this area um, as early as the uh, as the 1830s, um, the my um, father's side of the family, basically from this area, Washington County, South County. Um, my mother's side of the family, also from South County, like Brownsville, Roarsville, that area. My uh, father's family were all railroaders, Brunswick. Um, my mother's family were all um, my mother's family were all railroaders um, to a point um, the my father's side of the family were Coopers and Webbers who were all railroad that the whole family was railroad family the railroad during the time when it was booming 
um, during that 40s and 50s heyday. Um, by the time I was a child, my grandfather still worked on the railroad. He worked on the railroad until about 86, 87. Um, so there was still that, that those hand-me-down stories of what happened on that day-to-day -day basis. But those hand-me-down stories of the, the legend, if you will, or the, the glory days is kind of what I was spoon-fed a lot. Um, it's kind of interesting because as a child or as a, a kid during that time, you picked up on the jargon, the railroad terms. So, um, you know, it's kind of interesting now, you know, 20, 20 years later when you're talking to people who have no concept of what the terminology means. But, you know, you basically gain that by just being around it. Maybe not paying attention to it at the time, but you were just around it and you kind of absorbed it. So, um, um, you know, the, the railroad was basically dead when I was a child. And uh, I think that everybody wanted, and still kind of does, hang on to those glory days of when it was great. But I remember the railroad as being a source of um, furloughs, layoffs, um, you know, not knowing if you're going to have a job next year, that, that kind of thing. That That's the memories I remember. We did have a lot of chores to do. <laughs> and mowing grass and that. Dishes. Washing dishes. Yeah, washing dishes. Scrubbing, I remember. Mm -hmm. Scrubbing the stairs. Making beds. Making beds. No, just always cut wood. And they went fishing to get us food to eat. They went hunting to kill the rabbits for us to eat. And we had chickens and uh, hogs. hogs. So they had well, we, we fed the chickens usually, but they took care of the hogs. And I gathered eggs. <clears throat> and I hated it when the rooster chased me. Remember, we got the meal. The, the uh, flowered sacks. Flowered sacks, and Mum would make yes. make us dresses <laughs> yes. with the we flowered sacks yeah. from the Oh, yeah. From the you know, everybody was poor, but nobody knew the difference. When you're away from Brunswick, you always think of Brunswick. You always wished you were back there. I came to Brunswick because this is where my grandparents were and my wife at that time's parents were down here also. Because I had, my, my wife and I had three kids, my wife at the time and I had three kids and a young family and we couldn't afford a lot of places. So we scouted out a lot of areas and Brunswick was one place where we could, where we could afford to live, and once we moved here, we we, we um, bonded with many of our local neighbors in the townhouse development up there, and then that finally led us to the other areas of town. And it was kind of unique being up there, where we could, uh, where all the, all the young families, um, where we were all about the same age, all had young children, and we just bonded with them. And then we all, after after becoming established, we finally moved on to different other things. And although I. We debated at one time moving to Frederick because by that time I had pharmacies in Frederick. And uh, we debated moving over there and we thought about it and decided our children would be better off in Brunswick. And as it turned out, that was exactly right. We were never sorry we made that decision. I didn't want to take my kids to Washington or Baltimore. I could have worked at either place, Washington or Baltimore. But I didn't want, if it was me, just me, myself, yeah, I would have found a room. 
closer to work. But I didn't want to take my kids down there. Uh, I wanted them to be raised in Brunswick, small community, get a Brunswick schools give them a good education. Uh, but I didn't want my kids to, to have to fight what goes on in the city. Uh, basically, that's why I lived in Brunswick and commuted. She would come out to the house or have somebody to bring her because she didn't drive. She would come out the house and check on me every day after I got out of the hospital. But then she had another woman down the road who was about to deliver. She went and delivered her baby so she couldn't come out to me anymore. <laughs> I had to take care of myself. <laughs> and uh, she stayed with that woman the whole time too and did everything. And because the woman was, didn't have a lot, mom did it for nothing. One occasion that she had a um, young woman that was not married and uh, she took her into the home into our home and delivered her baby and kept her there. Um, the lady um, had her a child adopted out and when she got a job she left. Growing up as teenagers they had dances in the, in yeah. the churches and different places, the fire hall, uh -huh. different places. Patsy Klein came, a lot of big stars came out to the fire hall very close-knit community, I would say. People cared for each other and uh, were cooperative in many things that they did. Of course, we all had to relate to the railroad. That was the main thing. It's little, and we first moved to town. There we were with four children. So one of our neighbors, Mrs. Weinholt, asked my mother if she would like to go to church. And my mother said, oh, yes, we need to get to Sunday school with the children because we had been going to a, a Baptist church in Cumberland because it was closest to the house. And uh, Mrs. Weinhold didn't mention what church it was. She said, well, we'll all go to, you can walk with us on Sunday morning. So we got all up and Mama got us all cleaned up and we started walking and we went down A Street and there was Christian Missionary Alliance Church and we walked right by it. And then there was the Episcopal Church, we walked right past it. And of course we were children, we weren't allowed to, you know, we didn't ask questions, we just did what my mother told us. So we kept walking and she didn't ask any questions. There was the Lutheran Church, we went past the Baptist Church and we were all the way downtown, and I had never been downtown before. And we turned the corner and went up Potomac Street and went down, and there we were at the Methodist Church. We had passed all those churches. <laughs> and here it is, 70-some years later, and I still go to that church. My husband has a, had a job in D.C., Washington, D.C., and so we ended up, a friend of ours told us about this great place named Brunswick. It was right on the Mark Line. And so he could just um, ride the train down to D.C., Washington, D.C., and then come back up. And at the time, um, we had two small children, one about six months old. When we moved to Brunswick, we had a six-month-old and just about a three-year-old. And um, so we thought, and I was an at-home mom. I was home with my kids. So uh, I th we thought that was the, the best way. 
uh, when we first came to Frederick area, they told us, they kind of guided us, tried to guide us away from Brunswick, um, but we looked at Brunswick and said that was where the um, lower cost housing was. And since I was a mom at home, we just had one salary in the house, in the household, then um, we thought that would be a great place. Plus the train was sealed the deal. I love the small town community. I love the small town feel. When my boys were little, um, they loved the trains. They always loved the trains. Um, we, when we first came here, we learned how much volunteer spirit there was. We learned that the train station was painted and uh, renovated all by volunteer help. We were introduced to the Brunswick Museum and we met Pete Harper there and, um, and he was fantastic and he really you know, sold the whole idea, the whole volunteer spirit of Brunswick to us. Mostly everything in Brunswick was one eight hills. <laughs> Saturday nights in Brunswick used to be something because, you know, like I said, a lot of people didn't have cars and everybody from Virginia would come over and the streets were so crowded that you couldn't, you saw everybody. If you stood there long enough, you'd see everybody in Brunswick. This was Saturday night. And like us, we lived here on Winter's Hill and we dressed, you know, my mother would take us down and get us Cokes or something, and either Dars or the Horons. And that was something Saturday night in Brunswick. <laughs> Remember when his father came back, uh, this was post World War II, and he would have been about 10 or 11 in the 50s, that um, the, the crowd was six people deep, and he would actually have to hold him up on his shoulders to be able to see the Veterans Day Parade. So, you know, it's never really regained that much, um, uh, you know, in attendance, but, uh, you know, that's that's a kind of a long-standing tradition. Um, and, and I really think that a, a very major tradition in this, this community is, is the way that the community comes together when it needs to. And that's kind of a Brunswick thing. You always hear of uh, if there's a, a disaster, a fire, you know, the community comes together and tries to do everything that they can for that person. And I think that's a, a real strong point for Brunswick. Brother Shopping Center, that was called the Peach Orchard. Peach Orchard. Because they had peach trees, and I imagine they had apple trees and things like that. But the whole, both sides was orchards. And uh, Bill Winter had a barn across the road here, and when he'd fill that silo, he would invite all the children to come. And I thought he was being nice. And someone finally told me years later, said, you all were helping him because you were packing that silo down. <laughs> but we've just had fun, all this trash and stuff coming in. But uh, the local smaller stores were very active. Uh, but I'd say most people probably went to the store and bought their groceries. They walked. Mm -hmm. I can remember when I was growing up on 9th Avenue, which is in the three or four blocks in one area, there was only about two automobiles. So most people didn't have automobiles. And you either walked or somebody else took you. And you went to Frederick. So that's why Brunswick was self-sufficient. They didn't have a way to get to Frederick to get the things that do that. Kids from other towns like Frederick used to come over here, even when I was at Leighton High School, to do things because we had more to do. We had the best food. 
in the county. Oh yeah, the pool was supported uh, by the We had the, Shear uh, Stadium, which was probably the, well, definitely one of the nicest ballparks in the entire state of Maryland. Uh, and I believe that was all railroad property. They called it E.W. Shear Stadium, and I don't know how that all transpired. But the pool all the, was. Yes. The, and we had, the, um, we had the, the things here that uh, back and when I was a young kid, we had a hospital here. We had uh, Dr. Snoffer's Hospital. Mm -hmm. My mother was a nurse up there. Uh, I yes, could, she you was. know, just so many things that, that uh, we, we were a self-sufficient town. Really, to go to Frederick, you really didn't have a lot of need. Growing up in Brunswick, I told a lot of people, and I firmly believe it, I didn't have one set of parents. I had a hundred. The worst spanking I ever got was caused by a man I didn't know. We played baseball down along the railroad, down at the city park. When I was a little boy, the city park was completely grown up across on the south side, and we went down there. My cousins kind of coordinated it, Ronnie Ittenar, Ray Lucas Jr., the Moss boys, and a group of other boys, and we went down there and cleaned it all up. The town kind of saw what we were doing, and they helped us, and they cleaned it all up, and we played baseball. But we had a rule that if you hit the ball on the railroad, because our daddies all worked for the railroad. You were automatically out. You had to go get the baseball. Well, I fouled off a pitch, and I had to climb through three trains. And I knew not to go underneath of them, but I climbed through them. When I jumped down to pick up the baseball, I happened to glance up, and there was a man sitting on a train, and um, an engineer. He never said a word. I never said a word. I got picked up the baseball, and back through the three trains I went. And uh, I got home that evening, and my daddy said, let's go on upstairs. Well, as soon as my daddy said, let's go upstairs, I knew it was a spanking. And I said, what'd I do? He said, and he told me exactly that I climbed through three trains, I'd fouled off a pitch. He said, Mr. Uh, So-and-so saw me, and I don't even remember the gentleman's name, saw me at the caller's office, which was like a meeting place for everybody on the railroad in the evenings. And um, he said, told me what you did, and he said, you know you're not supposed to be on that railroad. And so that was, you know, that's why I say I've got to, if you were on the west end of town, and my father called it acting up, if you were acting up on the west end of town, Brunswick had a good ra uh, telephone system back there because of the, the railroaders calling the railroaders. And, you know, the phone call would be made from the west end of town to the east end of town. I grew up on New York Hill, 7th Avenue, and uh, my father and mother knew about it before I got home, if you were. So it was, it was a great little community. And you'd, when I was a kid growing up, I knew everybody lived in every house, you know, because you just knew them. You knew, you know, there were the, you had New York Hill, you had what was called Sandy Hook Hill, High School Hill, then you had Winters Hill and the West End. And you just kind of, and went back and forth and rode your bicycle around town and you could, you know, you didn't have to worry about locking up your bicycle. Yeah, the kids couldn't get away with anything back then because if, if they'd done something wrong, by the time they get home, you already knew about it. <laughs> Twelve years old, we could go over the river to go fishing all day and all that, and those guys would be down there and you really didn't have to worry because if something happened, they would take care of you. They looked out for you. Wherever you were, anywhere in town, it wasn't just over there. And if if uh, you were picked up by the town cop, Uncle Lee, <laughs> Babo, anyway, 
they took you home. That was the worst thing would happen. If you got in trouble downtown, you'd end up with a, a ride home, and that was not good. It was the but, small town. We couldn't really get in any serious trouble. The small town atmosphere, environment. Everybody knew everybody. Um, you, you recognize everybody in town. If you saw a stranger, everybody knew there was a stranger in town because the word traveled fast. There was a time of the day I could walk down any street in Brunswick and just about point to the house and tell you who lived there. Today I couldn't do it. Oh, I think the Veterans Day Parade ranks right up there. I, I can remember when the parade had a different route. It came, it started in the west end of town, came down to town, come all the way down through town, turned left on 3rd Avenue, and then turned left again and came up past the Episcopal Church, and that's where the, the reviewers, uh, the, the invited people sat up there where the tank is now. And of course, living in that end of town, we would walk up to the Episcopal Church, and we sat on Miss Manuel's wall. Her house was the first house, or Mr. Lutman's wall, that the first two houses in that block, right when everything got up there. And the the parades have changed somewhat. Um, the last couple of years I see, in fact last year I was really pleased with the parade, it seemed to go back and have the same flavor of military things. Um, not as, uh, and, and we had a lot of majorettes, and, but there for a while we lost marching bands, and I think some of that they're able now to get some back. But I can remember sitting up there with the snow coming down uh, and watching the parade. And, it was, and it's always been a day that everybody comes home to the house afterward and eats Mexican and vegetable soup. That's my family does the exact same thing, Mexican and vegetable soup, exactly. Yeah. That's funny. I've never yeah. had Mexican soup. It's not. Mexicans are sloppy joes. Sloppy joes. Yeah. Oh. My grandmother calls them Mexicans, too. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. What, we were, that's what they were called in high school. Mm -hmm. They made them at high school, and that's the recipe I have, is the one from the high school cafeteria that I make mine from. When I was in uh, about the first or second grade, I had to make a speech up on A Street. <laughs> <laughs> something about the poppies in Flanders Field, if I remember right. <laughs> Another girl and I did. But uh, everybody took part in the Veterans Day Parade at that time. It had a big parade. Uh, the exciting time in Brunswick was when they built the bridge across the Potomac yeah. River. Uh, there was a lot of excitement. There was, it was Brunswick always was a 24-hour town. In other words, you could buy food and drink any hour of the day in Brunswick. Uh, but when they were building the bridge, there was a lot of people that came here to build the bridge. In 1955, it opened up. And then, I don't know what the years, a couple years before that, we got the fire hall, and there was just a lot of excitement in Brunswick. And some of the highlights of the year were back at, at uh, Armstead's Day when we had our parade. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you could never mention the parade without thinking of Sonny Cannon and his sound system. Yep, and that's when not I was only thinking. Not only did he have a float and was just had, was a, a, almost a leader of all the activities in town. It just, it was tremendous. But he also had the sound system, uh, which 
we got a lot of advertisement, whether it was for a baseball game or whatever was politics. happening in town. Politics. He did a lot of politics, political. election time. But then that was a big time because the inauguration of the bridge was in 1955, and that was the year I graduated. It seemed like a lot of things were going on at that year. The one year we had uh, worked at the movie theater, they had a flute in the Armistice Day Parade, and it was called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And actually we had a, a float big enough for the seven girls and the seven boys. They, we were dressed in costume like the movie, and that was an advertisement for his movie. So he was so creative with things. And, and he, you and I both were on that float yeah, that one year. That was at, way back. 1955, I joined the fire department, and uh, I was active in that. And then in 1958, the ambulance company was formed. And a friend of mine was one of the people that helped get things started. And he kept begging me to join. And I said, I don't think I can do that. So he kept pestering me, and I said, well, OK. So I joined in 1959. And uh, I found that more rewarding than being a firefighter. And uh, so I stayed with the ambulance company. And I've been with it since. And uh, that, that's what kept me in Brunswick. It's a nice community. It was a nice community to raise your children. They all got a good education and uh, and good jobs. And I tell everybody, Brunswick gets a bad rap, but it was a great place to raise your children. It's a nice people in Brunswick are nice. You know, wherever you go, you they're just they're just nice and they welcome you. And uh, but being with the Amherst Company was extremely rewarding and uh, always great. You see people that you took to the hospital 10, 15 years ago. Oh, I remember you took me to the hospital, May, thank you, and it's just, it's just something I like to do. So. The, the old steam at, uh, whistle at the uh, roundhouse uh, when we had a fire, that steam whistle would blow, and it had a, uh, a rhythm, the way it blew, you knew that the fire was either in the middle of the town, the east or the west end of town. So you knew in about where the fire was going to be. Uh, we lost that when they closed up the roundhouse and stopped producing steam because it was a steam whistle. And you could hear it. I don't care where you was at in Brunswick, you could hear it. And that was a way of alerting firemen that there was a fire. Uh, all the fire calls would go in by telephone to the firehouse. If there wasn't somebody at the firehouse taking the call, there was a, another line at the YMCA. Well, they would pick up on that other line and they would listen. If somebody at the firehouse answered, then they would listen to the conversation. Well, if somebody at the firehouse didn't answer, then the YMCA would pick up on it, take the destination of the fire, and then when firemen arrived at the firehouse, I think I remember that number as being 1911 or 911, and you could redial your own number. And it, from the firehouse to the YMCA, it would ring, and then the YMCA would pick up, and they'd tell you where the fire was. Well, also, 
the YMCA alerted the roundhouse that there was a fire and where it was at, and they took that whistle. And Walter Rice, he had a, I think it was about a 47 Chevrolet coupe. And when I get home from school, he'd holler for me. He'd be waiting on me coming up the street from school and come over here. I went over to see what he wanted. We're going to Virginia to gather chickens. And he already had his chicken crates. I don't know if you girls ever seen a chicken crate, but he's already had them loaded up in his truck or in his car in the trunk. And we go to Lovettsville, to the farms around Lovettsville, chase chickens. Farmer tell us, go out there and get however many you want. And we go out there and chase them, grab them, throw them in the crate, come back that night. All the volunteers would get together behind the firehouse, boil water, build a fire under a tub, boil water, we'd scald the chickens, pluck them. And then on the weekend, or not on the weekend, but on a, I want to say it was on a Friday, but I'm not really sure. We'd have, have uh, the uh, annual supper, and we sold hundreds of suppers. The railroad was going real strong. The uh, hump, eastbound, westbound hump, they were going real strong. The car yard repair, where they repaired cars, that was strong, had a lot of employees. And we'd box up lunches, deliver them to the railroad. And then we had uh, people, you know, families come in, and get fed during the day for the uh, annual supper. I am, um, I've watched this community for 20 years now. I have an incredible respect for the people that built this town. Um, it was a railroad. It became, it became, a, it started as a canal town first, um, and then it evolved into a railroad town. And the people that worked on the railroad and that came here to work were all connected through the railroad. And so they didn't just, you know, work at different places and then come home to see each other. They worked together. They came home together. You know, so their social time was together. You know, they shopped together. They went to the do doctor and they took care of each other together. So there's a really tight bond um, between the, with the people that are here. I mean, they also argued with each other together too, but um, but there's a really tight bond, and I really respect that. I think it, it's I think it's wonderful to have that. Um, on on the other side too, people coming into this town um, sometimes feel alienated by that. Um, and it's it's very difficult when you're just coming into town to feel as though you're welcomed by the by the community. Once you've been in here and you've worked some, they've seen you in the schools or they've seen you around a little bit, and they know you and they feel more comfortable with you, they will give you the shirt off their back. So they are incredibly loving. You know, there are a lot of really wonderful, loving um, people in this town. Um, but it's hard to kind of break through to that sometimes. So that's where I see, I want to get the people that are coming into town to feel welcomed, but I also want the people coming into town to not, to actually have that, re that respect for the people that are here. I just love the place. 
and still ill. And I'm the fourth generation of my family to have lived in Brunswick. One of the things that happened in, I think it was 2010, was that the county and the state had gone together to purchase some land in our Frederick County area. It was called the, um, the Brunswick-Jefferson Regional Park. And they wanted all the people in the area to try to propose a park name. And so I was one of 20 that were that was asked to propose a park name. And when you proposed the name, you had to write a little synopsis of why you chose that name and why you thought the park should be named that. So 20 names were proposed. And this uh, committee took the names and they took all the information that people gave them and they voted on which names would uh, be taken to the county commissioners because the county commissioners had to make the final decision as to what the name of the park was. So when they finally narrowed down all the names, there were two left. And the name that I proposed and the name that Mayor Jones proposed were the two left. And so we were both uh, asked to come to the county commissioners and to describe our names and why we have proposed those names, what the history was behind it. So I prepared a little synopsis for them, and of course I documented all my history that I had told them about, made a presentation to the county commissioners, and at the end of that meeting, and I took with me a Stella Belt, because um, she helped me write this book as a black historian, and her um, relatives are very prominent in this book. And so when we went to the commissioner's meeting, I made my presentation. They voted at the end of the meeting. They unanimously voted, not single opposition, they unanimously voted to select Othello Regional Park as the name for the park. And Othello was Estella Belt's great-great-grandfather. And he built a stone house up on the mountain, and that stone cottage is still there. Stella herself lived there with her grandmother for a number of years. And um, we, we proposed that it be named Othello Regional Park, because there are no parks named for black people in Frederick County. And we thought it was high time there was. They had, they had built all of the uh, mansions in this area. They had built many of the churches in this area, and yet they had no recognition. And we thought that there should be recognition and that Othello would represent all of these people. Othello was named after a Shakespeare play when he was born. Later, when he was freed after the Civil War, he took a different name. He took his name as Barney Howard. His name was Bernard. He is buried in uh, St. Mary's Cemetery. and. He will go down in history as having a park named after him. And Estella Bill is his great-great-granddaughter. And we know that it takes a long time to make a park. It's probably going to be about 30 years before we actually see this park built, because it takes a long time to design it, construct it, get the money together, and so on. So Estella and I think that we won't be at the groundbreaking. So at the end of <clears throat> that commissioner's meeting, we celebrated our own groundbreaking. So I bought one brick for my father-in-law, 
and had it engraved and I presented it to the board of directors at the museum to see if they would go along with it. And it, wouldn't, it wasn't involving anybody but me, so of course they said yes. And then we got one brick after another, quite, quite a few bricks at one time, maybe hundreds. And then uh, that one thing led to another, and now we have over 500 bricks, I think. And it's still, people still buy bricks to be put in the walk. Life was good at Brunswick, and uh, the people were good to be with. And it was close to everything you wanted to get to. If you need to get to Frederick or Baltimore or Washington, you could without a problem. So. I just uh, preferred the small towns rather than the city. I went to school in the city for four years, and that was enough of a big city. <laughs> Said most of my relatives lived here, and you knew everybody. When I was younger, you, even if you didn't know them personally, you knew who they were and where they lived. Because like I said, just like me, I went to both schools, and I knew a lot of the children. <laughs> And people were friendly and helping each other. If you had something to do, everybody come in to help you. It's funny, newcomer isn't the same as outsider. And I was just referred to um, a few months ago, a couple months ago, before I'd announced or anything, but I was referred to as an outsider. Oh yeah, you're an outsider. And I said, I, I made this motion like, you stabbed me to the heart, you know? That's like, come on, I love this town. I feel, I mean, I've been in this town longer than I've been anywhere else in my life. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I didn't move there till we were about six. I left when I was 18. So I was only there about 12 years here. I've been here 20 years. I've raised my family here. So I do feel as though I'm a part of Brunswick now. So I understand, I understand the feeling of outsider. I mean, I understand the feeling that the people that built this, this town um, and the generations that have been here, I understand that deep commitment and, uh, but I, I I hope I hope that they will they understand too and many of them do that um, the newcomers you know will eventually be the old timers here and the old you know and that they can love this town and and sometimes I think they come in and they sh they say to people that have been living here you have such an incredible town and sometimes when you've been somewhere so long, you don't realize that it's so wonderful. One of the things I want to do is have our kids want to come back and settle in, in Brunswick. That's a definite goal. I want them to grow up here, feel like, yeah, it's a little town I want to get out, and then I want, and then I want them, when they're ready to settle down, I want them to come back. So. It's, you know, walking on that canal when it's very early in the morning, there's nobody else out there. Uh, my personal favorites is knowing knowing those uh, trails on the canal where you can go down by the river, you know, and watch that that sun come up that nobody else knows about. Um, I don't know. I've uh, I always made the joke that I kind of ran away three times, but I always find myself back here, and I don't know why. Um, I could, you know, especially now I could live anywhere I wanted to, um, but I choose to live here. Um, I think that there's a nostalgia for the place. I think that there's a hope for the future. Um, I, but you know, you know, I kind of view this as it was, you know, it was fine and perfect for my family. It's fine and perfect for my family of the future. Um, and and I love this place. So I mean, you know, I can't uh, I can't take 
I could, in my heart, take Brunswick anywhere I go. But, you know, if I, I have no problems living here. I like living here. Um, and uh, I've lived in other places. I thought it would be the grass always seems greener on the other side. And, um, I always end up finding my way, wandering my way back here. So. Um, started in 1954. I was five years old. Uh, my first day at school, at 12 o'clock, I left the school and started walking home. And um, I got down as far as Mary Cage's house, and she was out front working, and she said, and of course that's <clears throat> one of the benefits of growing up in a small community. She knew exactly who I was, and she said, Charlie, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. I'm finished with school. And um, she um, put me in a Jeep. They had a Jeep pickup, or a Jeep, a little open Jeep. And uh, she took me back up to the school. And um, I started crying, and they got my sister. She was in the sixth grade, and they brought her down. And from then on, you know, I was fine in school. Yeah, I went to East Brunswick Elementary School. And about from the middle of Brunswick West, they went to West Brunswick Elementary School. And both schools were probably about the same size. They had uh, seven grades in them at that time. And the West End School, is right next to the post what is office. now the post office, which was the playgrounds where we kids played during school. And the East End School is an apartment house down in the East End of town. And near the city park. And the two schools were rivals of one another. And the West End School would say, West End beaters, East End cheaters. <laughs> and the East End kids would say, East End beaters, West End cheaters. And so we really didn't know all of the kids in town until we got to Brunswick High School. But the West End School, all the Knoxville kids all came down and went to the West End School. And I guess I was in the fifth grade about the fifth grade when we moved up to the new elementary school. So I don't know what year that was, but we had to carry, I had Miss um, Lavinia Hood, and I think most kids our age will remember, we had to carry all the books and everything up to that school. She didn't trust anybody to move them. So every day we'd take wagons and take stuff up to the new elementary school from the old West End school. And I went to school in Brunswick uh, because the Knoxville school was closed down. Uh, my brother was in about the second grade, Gary. Uh, they closed the Knoxville school because everybody had hoot and cough, the disease, and they closed the school down for a year, and then the county sent all the Knoxville kids to the Brunswick school. So they all repeated a year. They all went down and stayed back a year because they missed almost a year of school. I think I have that close to being right, but the old uh, elementary school, high school, or whatever it was, is still on the hill up there by the graveyard in Knoxville. The Darkerties owned that or lived there for years. People did not go to school here in Brunswick, other than you had your own elementary and you had your own high school in Frederick. When we got big snows in, in uh, Brunswick on, they would block off A Street. Oh yeah. And. We'd have a big bonfire out there. They would have it blocked off, and kids 
as long as the snow lasted, we were up and down the hills there at A Street between, what was it, not 2nd Avenue? Yeah, and there was a whistle stop that sold food. Uh, you know, they had, um, I don't know whether they had the whistle stop when you were... Oh, yes. The whistle stop had uh, coffee, you know, hot chocolate and food. And they'd stay open pretty late. It was down on, right across from the Y. They only had like two, they had one snowplow, I think, and they had a grader. And Max Cecil was the grader operator. Well, <clears throat> and it was an open cab. God bless him, he probably froze to death. But he was just a wonderful individual. And uh, they'd come up there, and we'd stand there with our sleds. Just make a line across, because we didn't want them to cinder the hill. Because if they cindered the hill, sled riding was done. And so they'd, um, they wouldn't cinder the hill. About five or six of us went to the swimming pool in the summer. And we climbed over the fence and skinny dip. <laughs> but uh, that was short because the cops come up there with no lights or sarines or anything. And you know, the kid knew the cops. And he comes flying, blasting his light around. We hug the side of the swimming pool. He said, I know you're in there. Come on out. So what we're going to do, come on out. So we come out. He said, I want you all to get your clothes on and get down over the hill. He said, I don't want to see you up here again. Don't want to be called for you again. So we got a break. Our parents never found a day. But, uh, we were, me and some of my friends, uh, uh, we were barred. You'd, we would, if you did something, you would get barred for 30 days. And I remember getting barred for, it was a big thing in the old theater. You could you'd get popcorn and throw it up in the air, and it's pretty distracting in a movie theater like that was. Anyway, you'd be throwing popcorn. And that was a big thing. And then. The owner, the manager, Herb Goldberg. That's right, Goldberg was there. <laughs> yeah. cut he come down and kicked us out. I remember my, I got kicked out of the movie, and we'd gone to the movie one night, and we had to leave. I was home before it got dark. It was in the summertime, and my stepfather and my mother wanted to know why I got, why I was home early. Just they'd give me money to go to the movie. I said we got kicked out. Well. I had to, I was forced to tell him what happened, so my stepfather got angry and went down and jumped all over the guy that owned the movie theater. So I only got a week, I think. I think I could go back after about a week. But we used to do things in like the time that, that I believe I mentioned to you that my stepfather worked on the railroad and they worked over in Baltimore City and not a lot of people knew about Limburger cheese at that time. Well, when you're 13 years old and you smell that one time, you know it's not you know, you think you got a, a cat litter box or something. So anyway, <laughs> we get into that, and I get a couple of my buddies, and we go down, and it was, I think that it was in the wintertime then, and the radiators were, radiators were uh, in operation. They were covered kind of, and, you know, it wasn't trashy. But we decided that if we could go down there and put some of that Limburger cheese on those radiators, that would be a, that would be a real trick for us. Well, we were about 12 or 13. Well, we did that. I don't think we ever got in trouble with for that or but and then we used to have a lot of problems on Saturday morning because the East End kids oh yeah Always and the West End kids it was a big thing to get in line first 
to start with at the mm -hmm. theater because that usually ended up, they had to come out and break up a scuffle there. And then that wouldn't be enough when you get in a theater. I can still see that lattice work down the front mm -hmm. on the front row. You had to be on the front row. Well, then you'd get down there, and then what happened outside, then the, the scuffle would start again, and then they'd have to separate the kids. But everybody wanted to sit down on the very front row. I don't know why, because it certainly wasn't the best seat, because you were looking right up the screen. But things like that happened at the theater, and then you got older, and then... Well, every Saturday morning, you had the cereal. Uh, what was it, Red Rider and... and uh, oh, the cartoons, yeah. uh, Road Runner. But everything continued from week Three to Stooges. week. Three Stooges. <laughs> it was a continued story, so you almost had to go every Saturday morning to find out what happened to Red Rider and what was his little friend's... Little Beaver. Little Beaver. Did a lot of sled riding because there's a lot of hills. Mm -hmm. In the street? Did you do it in the street? Oh, yeah. There wasn't enough traffic to bother you too much. Mm -hmm. You could start on uh, at the church on New York Hill come down Park Avenue, come up on A Street, and go down A Street, and if it was a good little icy, you might go to the square corner in downtown Brunswick. All in one push? All in one push. It was a long walk back. <laughs> <laughs> we walked to school, which was a mile. We went home for lunch, walked home for lunch, and we walked back, and sometimes we went under those little Coffins, <laughs> which we should not have. Played outdoors, and we had a um, hide and go seek. Yeah, had all kind of outdoor games. And sometimes in the summer, we would be going from daylight to dark. We knew to come home when the lights, the street lights came on. We would take bread and stuff with us to to maintain us through the day. Swing one of the the, the uh, vines out in the woods. Oh, we had we had a good time. Yeah, you know, like I said, when my mother she would tell everybody that we were going swimming, and she'd pack a lunch and we'd walk out to Three Rocks or Bell's Mill or well, not hard to Bell's Mill, but Three Rocks and out to Jones. It was different. It was just a little creek, <laughs> but that's the only place we had to swim. And, Unless we went up to the sandbar on the rail, uh, river, and we went up there a lot. And she'd pack a lunch, and then she'd look after the children. And you just did family things like that. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we had the movies. But, and then they had dances down the park. And of course, if you're too young, too young to dance, well, you went down and watched them, because they'd open the windows, you know, you could watch them dance. And but uh, a lot of the streets in Brunswick at that time weren't paved. And uh, a part of Ninth Avenue wasn't paved. And uh, we could go out there and catch ball. There wasn't much traffic. Mm -hmm. Now, if a cop would come up, he would run you. He would tell you to get out of the road. But you only had one policeman. He rode a motorcycle when I was a kid. <laughs> so they didn't bother us much. Hide and seek. And we did sit on the curve and, you know, play different games and or just sing. <laughs> My brothers and them all had a song. They said the lady next door didn't like the black cat, so she gave it to the lady next door. And that's all it was, and they'd sing it for about a half hour, and then they'd come home at night. <laughs> but I guess they sang other songs, but that was their theme song. You had to cross the tracks to go 
over to the river or anything to go fishing or anything you were going to do. So, you know, we thought we knew everything. So you'd get a gang of you and you'd cross the tracks and they'd say, do not climb the trains. Absolutely never climb the trains. We did. But you'd get somebody over and then you'd, they'd look out for you. But that wasn't a point. If those trains would hit, mm -hmm. that's the problem, not what was... Culverts that uh -huh. run under the railroad. Uh -huh. And there's about two or three of them that you can stand up in. And you can get in the culvert. You had a little bit of water in there, not much usually. And you could run back, if they were around, you could run back and forth across until you got over on the other side. And uh, this was played like, like you, just like you're playing on a football field. You, you, you only be done in the middle of the street. Uh, we would uh, kick the can back and forth, have two teams, just like you do in football. And uh, also a lot of marbles and jacks, and find an old wheel of some sort and uh, make a, a guide or a stick with a, with a cross piece on the, on the bottom of it and uh, would uh, play with that. We kind of wanted the boys to have environment that we had. You know, we wanted like, to raise them here. We wanted to know who their friends were, who their friends' families were, because we were in Tennessee and North Carolina and around and you didn't know people. They always included you and we're not hard to get along with, so, you know, but we kind of both decided you know, why keep our kids someplace else, bring them home where they can have the same environment, know some of the people we knew, and our kids have had a lot of laughs from friends of ours that they could share stories with. So that's kind of just like we're sharing stories with you. All for on the record, the reason we came back from Tennessee, I have an outstanding situation with sales, engineering sales, traveled all the time, was going a lot. And having been come from a broken family, and I knew what the lifestyle that was going on, I knew that it would be almost impossible for a family to survive the lifestyle that you have to live when you're traveling from Monday to Friday and, and just a lot of things. And it, you could, but I having experienced what I did when I was six or seven years old and both of us being from broken homes, it was kind of pretty imperative that we get into a stable family situation and that is if I wanted to say any re that's why I wanted to come back to Brunswick because I felt like this was the right place to raise our boys and it was because of our childhood experiences and just what we've told you I wanted them to grow up in that atmosphere you meet a lot of kids from a lot of places but there's a lot of stability and kids in a small from, town that has roots. And like I'd this. say the roots are what brought it yeah. back. Yeah, roots, that would be, I drug it out a lot, but it was the roots. <laughs> but the roots, that'll <laughs> add <the> it. <laughs>